Father, we come now to having sung the word about Christ, we come to listen and to be illumined to the word of God, to have, to hear the word of Christ in the word of God. And we, as a congregation, recognize the importance of this moment. We're determined by your spirit. We're determined to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Father, we come in weakness, we come in fear, we come in trembling to the word of God. And we're not interested in the opinion of man. We're not interested in persuasive words of rhetoric or man's wisdom, but we are interested, Holy Spirit, in the demonstration, in your demonstration of power so that faith would flourish, so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but our faith would rest on the power of God. Come, Holy Spirit, and do this work through your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. On January 24th, 1848, James Marshall uh, found one of the most precious substances known to mankind. James Marshall struck gold. He struck gold, and on that day, the California gold rush began, and, and the news of this spread. The news of, of finding gold spread, and approximately 300,000 people traveled to California from the rest of the United States, and in some cases from, from overseas in search of gold. And when they got there, it was, it was a tough life. I mean, the, the living quarters were, were terrible, and it was hard work. They had to dig for gold. They had to mine for gold. They, they panned in streams for gold. They earnestly sought this gold, this fortune. They were looking. They were searching for something in that day very valuable. Frankly, in our day, very valuable. They were searching for something precious. They were searching for a treasure, really. Many times a buried treasure. They were searching for pure gold. And what I want you to, to know this morning is, is that our Lord Jesus Christ is also searching for something. He, he is looking to and fro for something, something marvelous, something, frankly, amazing, something certainly valuable, but it's not gold that he's looking for. It's not gold. Certainly, he's not looking for fool's gold, fake gold. What is Jesus Christ looking for? Take your Bibles and let's find out. 
Take your Bibles and turn as we continue the exposition of the book of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 7. We start a new chapter today. Luke chapter 7. And our text this morning will be Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And as I read, you follow along as I read, I want you to, to look for what Jesus is looking for. See if you can answer that question. What is Jesus searching for? In our passage, Luke chapter 7 and verse 1, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. When when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant him, to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, They found the slave in good health. What is Jesus looking for that is so valuable? What did he find in our passage this morning? Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. What what Jesus, listen... What Jesus is looking for is faith. Let me say that again. What Jesus is looking for is faith. And in our passage this morning, Jesus finds faith in the most unlikely place. He finds faith, listen to this, he finds faith in a Gentile Roman centurion. Look at verse 1. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. So this is the very next account 
It happened right after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We've just been doing an exposition of Jesus' sermon uh, in, in Luke chapter 6, and the whole theme of that sermon was discerning discipleship, the difference between genuine discipleship and false discipleship. That is the great message of the sermon. And this account happened right after that sermon. It's, it's as if Luke, who wrote this, is saying, look at this centurion. If you didn't understand the, the sermon of Jesus and the words. Let me give you a case study. Let me show you what genuine discipleship looks like. And it's found in a Gentile Roman soldier in a centurion, a genuine disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, a living model of the truth of Jesus' sermon on genuine discipleship. So Jesus travels, I think, about a day travel, about 20 miles from where he preached that sermon uh, to the northwest shores of the Sea of Galilee to um, a town, a city uh, located on that shore, a city called Capernaum. And in verse 2, two key characters of this story are introduced. Look at verse 2. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. So a centurion was a, a Roman soldier uh, under Herod Antipas, and a centurion was in charge of 100 soldiers, 100 soldiers. Now, a Roman legion in that day uh, was huge. It would contain 6,000 men, and those 6,000 men were divided into 10 cohorts of, of uh, so 100 men, yes, 10 cohorts of 600 men, and so the centurion would be over 100 of those men or so. So this poor guy, this centurion, some of you have been there, this centurion was in middle management. Uh, it would be a little bit like a captain in our armed forces. There was generals over him, and he was over 100 men. So centurions were, were, were not part-time. They were career soldiers for Rome, and they were typically very strong, able men, responsible. They were reliable. They were known for their bravery. They were known for their loyalty to Rome. They were very skilled, very skilled with the sword. Very skilled in negotiation, very skilled in leadership. And for all of this, the centurion would be, to be frank, they would be rich. They were paid a very large salary to hold this position in the Roman army. One scholar had said of the centurions and their responsibilities would be this, quotes, keeping order, enforcing the law, and overseeing the collection of taxes from the Jews, in quotes. So this centurion, who is not named, he, he doesn't have a name. We'll have to ask when we get to heaven. This centurion, he's not named. He looks to be overseeing a detachment of Roman troops assigned to the region near Capernaum, about 100 troops. We know that he is a Gentile from verses 4 and 5. 
We don't know his ethnicity for sure, but make no mistake about it, he was a Gentile, and he was serving Rome. He was a Roman soldier. And this Roman centurion, the text says, had a slave. He had a slave, and this slave was in a desperate situation. In a parallel passage, he was paralyzed, bedridden, sick, and our text says he was at the point of death, at the point of death. He was on his deathbed, suffering horribly, tormented, the parallel passage in Matthew tells us. But notice something strange. The centurion, the Roman Gentile centurion, highly regarded his slave. Did you notice that word? Who was highly regarded by him in verse 2? That's a strange statement. That's the idea, not of valuable, like he's valuable because he can do stuff. The word is that this centurion honored this servant, this slave, esteemed him as a person, as a friend, as someone dear to him, someone he cared about. In that day, it would be shocking for a Roman centurion, perhaps anyone for that matter, but, to, but a Roman centurion for sure, to care this way about his slave. Very strange. We're meant to see something is up here. Something is very strange about this centurion. And so the setting now is established, and we've got some key characters in, in the story, but now we're introduced to the key character in the story and you guessed it, the most important person in this story is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so enter Jesus, and we come and we're to see in this account that Jesus is here, not by accident, right after he preaches this sermon, he's here by divine purpose, and Jesus is always looking. Jesus is always up to something. Jesus is always searching for something. And what Jesus is looking for, he's looking for faith. He's looking for not any old head knowledge kind of faith. He's looking for saving faith. He's looking for genuine discipleship, genuine faith in those who are saying they're following him. And so Jesus wants us to come to this passage and think deeply whether or not we have this faith, to think deeply uh, and to compare our options about faith and about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what Luke is doing, he's just a master. He is a genius writer. What Luke is doing is subtly he's offering to us, and he's making us make a decision about what faith is and what discipleship is. And he's going to offer in this passage four viewpoints about true faith, four viewpoints about discipleship. And we are to ask ourselves whether we have the real thing. Are we looking in this life for what Jesus is looking for? Do we have what is most valuable in this life? That's what Luke is doing. It's an incredible passage, and we're going to try to get through all of it today. So we must get moving. There are four viewpoints then. If you have an outline, you can take notes. There are four viewpoints about genuine discipleship that Luke highlights in this story. First, first, the Jews' viewpoint. We have the first viewpoint is the Jews' viewpoint. 
Verse 3, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. So this Gentile Roman centurion has heard about Jesus. He's received information about Jesus. The word is certainly on the street of what Jesus has been doing and the words that, of life that are dripping out of his mouth. And so this centurion has some information, and he had inquired into Jesus. And so he knew that Jesus was one who could even do something about his slave who was paralyzed in torment and at the doorstep of death. He had hope that there was hope found in Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly where he got it, but he, when he heard about Jesus, he did something. He didn't just think, he did something. He sent some Jewish elders asking him to come. Now, this is so strange. A Roman, now think about this, come on. A Roman Gentile centurion going to Jewish elders and asking Jewish elders to run an errand for them and them being willing to do it, this is a strange story. Something strange is happening. This is not common. This is shocking. Something is so different about this centurion. Typically, a, a Roman centurion, a Gentile Roman centurion, would absolutely hate the Jews. They'd like, like the paycheck, like the paycheck, hate the Jews. You never like your paycheck and hate your job? Not this guy. This is different. You see, typical Gentile Roman centurions were pagan polytheists. One scholar says this, quotes, here's what they thought about the Jews. The Romans called the Jews a filthy race. They spoke of Judaism as a barbarian superstition. They spoke of Jewish hatred of humankind. They accused the Jews of worshiping an ass's head and annually sacrificing a Gentile stranger to their God, end quotes. They typically refused to even associate with the Jews. And we know what the Jews thought of the Gentiles. <laughs> what did they think of, of Roman centurions? Filthy, dirty Gentiles. They wouldn't even associate them. But something strange, something supernatural is happening in this passage. Let's find out what happens next in verse 4. Verse 4, when they came to Jesus, so now the Jewish elders uh, are on the road. They're heading to Jesus. They, they find him. They find Jesus. And here's what they say. They earnestly implored him saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. He, he's worthy for you to gift him um, the salvation of his servant who is on his deathbed. He's worthy. Jesus, you should come do this. For this guy, you should do it. I know he's a Gentile, Jesus, and we're the Jews. But this one's different. 
Verse 5, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. So the Jewish leaders find them. They're super passionate. The text says they're begging him over and over. They're imploring Jesus, give him this gift. He is worthy for you to give this grace to him, to grant this to him. Why? For two reasons, Jesus. Two reasons. Number one, this Gentile Roman centurion loves our nation. He loves our nation. Somehow this Gentile centurion had overcome significant prejudices and bias against the Jews, against Israel, and, and really, they were really his enemies, and for whatever reason, he loved the Jews. He recognized these people as the chosen people of God. He recognized these people as beloved of God, and the text says that he actually loves them. And this love is agape love. This is love is a love of action. And so then we see the second reason the Jewish elders say that he is worthy, because he, and it's really emphatic in the Greek text, um, he loves our nation, and it was he, it was this one. Can you believe it, Jesus? It was he who built the synagogue right here in Capernaum. He did it. He himself, I don't know if he was there holding the beams and doing the construction, but I'll tell you something. He funded it out of his own paycheck. He built this synagogue for us, Jesus. He's worthy for you to come and heal the servant. So, in Capernaum, there's a synagogue, and the centurion fully funded it. He, he wanted to have a place of worship where the Old Testament scriptures would be explained and pronounced. Something was massively different about the centurion. He was certainly a God-fearer, and it seems that he had a love for the nation of Israel. He had a love for the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. And we know at the core of Judaism, we know, was at the core is the hope of the Messiah. And there was something happening in this man's heart. And you're going to get his viewpoint in a second. But I want to highlight the Jews' viewpoint, though, first of discipleship. And we find it in verse 4. Now catch this. This is Luke's whole point. Are you ready? What is the Jews' viewpoint? Of discipleship. Here it is. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy for you to give him grace because of what he has loved and what he has done. Did you notice that? That is the viewpoint of the Jews. We just talked about two foundations. Is is we are worthy because of what he have done, and God should respond to what we have done and give us grace. Does that sound like the gospel of Jesus Christ? But that is the viewpoint of the Jews. And, of course, the Jewish elders put their own spin on the centurion's request here. They do. And that's why the centurion sends his friends next. Let's see. No, maybe I should send my friends next. Maybe they'll represent where I'm really at. But the viewpoint of the Jews is this. 
Look at this guy. The centurion has done this and he's done that. He is worthy of your grace. And this is what we see today in all of the world, the religion of human achievement, that what we do, that our works merit before God so that if we do enough good things, if we're truly a good person, God ought to say, wow, boom, You're worthy of my grace. You have earned a place in heaven. And this is the viewpoint that Jesus has been challenging in the book of Luke. He says, don't look. These, these Jewish elders, they're full of head knowledge. They look super superficially. They look superficial and they say, he is a good guy. Look at what he has done. Look how he loves our nation. Look at all his works. And they see just these big works. They have such a, they have such a big view of themselves, such a small view of sin. And here is the problem. People are looking. The Jews' viewpoint, they're looking only externally, superficially at the veneer. They refuse to look deep down into the very heart of man. And that was the point of the sermon that Jesus was saying. We got to dig deep into this foundation. We got to get to our heart. And out of, our, out of our heart, a mouth speaks. Jesus said, I need your heart. And of course, the viewpoint of the Jews is this. We're just fine before a holy God. They've basically come to sin and define sin and put, uh, on their own measure, and they had a high view of their self. They stayed superficial in their religion, skin deep. It's classic. It's classic. I was just up to the North Shore just a couple of days, up to Silver Bay, and I like it more in the summer. I've decided up on the North Shore, but <laughs> I was up there, and sometimes you're hiking up in those rivers. You know, you get inland a while and you're up by the waterfalls. The water looked, and you're thirsty from hiking, and the water looked so clean and so pure, doesn't it? You just want to take the water and just start lapping it up. But that's a little bit superficial because if you get down deep into that water, you put a microscope on it, you know what you're going to find in that water? Dead bugs. Larva, colonies of green bacteria, and are you ready for this? Put your seatbelt on. Even baby leeches wriggling together in colonies. That's the reality of that clean water. But the Jews, the Jews' viewpoint, they're not willing to get deep and look deeply into their heart and to see that my heart is dark and sinful and hard. They don't have an understanding of Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? They have a low view of sin. They have a high view of themselves. That is the viewpoint of the Jews and the religion of Jesus' day. And I think I think that's what we believe. I think that's if 100 people are asked on the street, 99 will have this view of themselves. I'm a pretty good guy. If there's a God, and there probably is, and if there is, he's going to weigh my good and my bad, and if my good's a little bit better than my bad, I'm going to be okay. He knows that I'm sincere in what I believe. He knows I'm a patriot, that I've done the best that I can. I pay my taxes and all of that. 
He's going to say, close enough. And if there is a heaven, I'm not sure there is, but if there is, I want to go there, and he'll let me in. That's my viewpoint. And that was the viewpoint of Jesus' day. Well, Luke is not content with that. Luke wants us to get down and get the heart of the matter of true Christianity. And that leads us to the second viewpoint then, the centurion's viewpoint. The centurion's viewpoint. Now, Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. Now, watch this. Did you see it? Don't trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Stop there. What is the viewpoint of the centurion? Well, it's almost like the centurion sent these Jewish elders and and now Jesus says, I'll go with you. And Jesus is coming, and it's almost like the centurion's thinking, he can't come under my roof. I need, hey, hey, Bill, Ted, friends. He finds some friends and says, go out and meet Jesus. And instead of you coming up with your own words, here's the words. Here's my heart. Here's my viewpoint. I want you to share it for him. I'm not even worthy to set eyes on this man. I'm not worthy for this man to come under my roof. Go out. Stop him. He's getting close. Don't let him come to my door. Go tell him something from me. And he sends his friends out. Not the Jews. He doesn't want to twist on his viewpoint anymore. Give him my viewpoint. The viewpoint of the Jew says he is worthy. And the viewpoint of the centurion is this. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm not worthy for you to come to me, Jesus. I'm not worthy to walk out and meet you on the room. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Does this remind you of Peter in the boat at the revelation of the power of God and the miraculous gift of fish when he recognizes who who Jesus is in that boat and he says depart from me Lord for I am a sinful man it's a realization of who Jesus is and he wants to be separate the holiness of God found in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ go away from me Lord Peter said Luke chapter 5 and verse 8 this is the very heart of the centurion his eyes are open to see his unworthiness before Jesus his eyes are open to see his own sin at the heart level at the level of the depth of his heart i mean by the way what a good guy am i right you going to get better than a gentile centurion who loves the nation of Israel and shells out cash out of his own paycheck to build a building for his enemies? But does he consider himself worthy because of what he has done? Jesus, Jesus, here, get to my house. I built the synagogue. I love your people. The Old Testament scriptures, I love. It's quite... Amazing, isn't it, Jesus, that a guy like me, who's supposed to hate your people, love your people, Jesus, get over here. 
it's time for you to scratch my back. No. He knew his utter sinfulness, that it was deep down and within. He knew the corruption and the evil within. He can't do anything on his own. He has been humbled before God. And what does Jesus say at the beginning of of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Was the centurion poor financially? No, he was rich. But I'll tell you what, he was poor in spirit. He was a beggar before God. I'm not even worthy for you to come under my roof, Jesus. He had seen this about himself. He had seen and felt his own vileness and corruption, that he's poor in spirit. He's broken and needy. He needs Jesus. He needs Jesus, but he's not worthy of Jesus because of his own evil nature. He saw that under the microscope, on the inside, by the Spirit. That's his viewpoint of himself. That's his viewpoint of himself. What's his viewpoint of Jesus? Well, look at it. Verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, his Turian sent friends saying to him, Lord, stop there, Lord, do not trouble yourself. He calls him Lord. The same word that Peter used in the the boat, Lord, Yahweh. It's not sir, it's not a polite gesture. This guy's not, this isn't polite niceties. This man has been shown something from the Spirit that Simeon, that Anna saw when they beheld Jesus Christ. They were, he was shown the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's a recognition that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Christ is Lord. Peter understood this. And everyone who builds a foundation on the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ calls him Lord, Lord, and is willing to come to him is willing to listen to him and willing to submit to him and to his authority and to obey his word, just like this centurion of old. For this reason, verse 7, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority. With soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And so the centurion recognizes that Jesus Christ has authority. And the centurion understands authority. Why? He's got got generals over him commanding. He's a middleman. He's got generals over him. He's got a hundred people that he's commanding. He understands authority, and he understands that he wields his authority, the centurion does, through his word. Do this. He speaks, and it's done. Come, and he comes. Go, and he goes, and he recognizes in Jesus the ultimate lordship, the authority of the word of Christ. Did you hear me? He recognizes the authority of the bare word of Jesus Christ, that the word of Christ has the authority. Such an important part of Luke's story here. Look at it in verse 7. I love it. Here it is in verse 7. I love it. Make a plaque out of this. In fact, Andy and Katie, I want one. Just say the word. 
just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Jesus doesn't need to come. Jesus doesn't need to touch him. Jesus doesn't need to put ointment on or mud in pancakes. He doesn't even need to see Jesus with his own eyes. Say the word. Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you have authority. Jesus, you are worthy. The centurion knows, as one has said, if Jesus speaks, his word must be obeyed. The authority of the word of Christ. The viewpoint of the centurion, I'm sorry, is much different than the Jews. The Jews say, I, he is worthy. But the centurion says, I am unworthy, but Jesus is worthy, authoritative. He is Lord, and I know his word will be obeyed. And this is a Gentile Roman soldier. Are you amazed by his faith? Well, Jesus was, and that leads us to our third viewpoint. Jesus' viewpoint. In all of the New Testament, there are only two places where Jesus was amazed. Two places, or at least where it uses this verb for his amazement, and this is one. Jesus marvels at the centurion, but what does he marvel at? Look at verse 9. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, Not even in Israel have I found such great faith. The faith that the centurion demonstrates is what Jesus is searching for. What is this faith that amazes Jesus? Well, let's look at it and look at Jesus' viewpoint. Spurgeon says about faith, quotes, faith is the soul's eye. Faith is the soul's eye by which it sees the Lord. So faith is really a spiritual sight, a seeing of things unseen that that leads you to have confidence and dependence upon God and Christ. It grabs a hold. It sees spiritual realities that, that remain unseen to the natural man. It's faith, and it sees two things. Number one, faith sees yourself. Faith always, it doesn't just see Jesus, and it doesn't just see yourself, but it always sees both. Faith sees yourself for who you really are. Faith causes you to see your own sin, your own helplessness, your own need of Jesus. And I don't care if you're Mother Teresa. Faith says, I am unworthy before a thrice holy God. It says, I get Isaiah saying, woe is me. I know that I am a sinner through and through. Listen, faith is not trusting what you think about yourself or how you feel about yourself. Hear me on this. Faith is believing what the Word of God says about you. I'm going to say that again. Faith is believing what the Word of God declares about you. 
And when your eyes are open to see that, this is humility before God. So faith sees this lowliness of self and sin, but faith doesn't stop there. Faith also not only sees self, but faith sees Jesus. Faith sees Jesus. Oh, your eyes are open. He is more than a man. He is not a prophet only or a teacher only or a man only. He is God incarnate. He is the Lord of glory. He has authority. His word must be obeyed. And not only that, he's the Lord of glory. I'm not wor- he's not worthy to even be in my sight and my presence. But I'll tell you what, I know something about him. He's willing to come. Isn't that amazing about Jesus? Poor Jesus is to put up with all this bad theology all the time. And he's so patient. How patient are we? He's got the Jews yapping on. This guy's worthy. This guy's worthy. Jesus says, I'll come with you. That's the heart of our Savior. Can you believe it? I'll go with you. He's looking for something. This is the heart of our Savior. And he started on his way with them. The Holy Spirit opened up the centurion's heart to understand the person and power of Jesus Christ and his willingness to come to help the hopeless, to save the sinner, to bless the brokenhearted. And that's what faith does. Faith sees it really does. Listen to me. Faith feels it. Faith sees that it's true, that truly you are a a lawbreaker before God, that, that if hell is real... Eternal damnation is real. We can hardly even talk about it. But you start to realize, yep, my sin deserves that. That is how bad I am and how vile I am. Faith sees your own sin and then sees, oh my, there's one who is willing to touch a leper like me. His name is Jesus. He actually loves me. He's gentle and lowly of spirit. He'll come to me. He's the only one who can. He will come to me if I ask him. And he can just speak a word. And it will be so now. I don't have to wait. I don't have to earn it for 70 years. Doing all kinds of good things so that maybe he'll speak the word then. No, he'll speak the word in power now. He'll come. He will save me. And I will find rest for my souls. Faith says with Fanny Crosby, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus. My Jesus, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. Faith says with the hymn writer, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is the cry of faith. And so Jesus' viewpoint is that faith spiritually sees the truth about yourself and the truth about him. Amazing faith, isn't it? And just a note, and I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but I probably should. So listen quickly. We are kind of shocked about this Gentile centurion, this Roman centurion, right at the beginning of the passage. What gives? What gives? 
what's up with this individual? This is not normal. He ought to hate the Jews. What is different about him? Ah. I mean, in that day, you don't even want to know what the Roman centurions did to their young boy slaves. And yet this one loved him as a son with affection and respected and cared for him. What is the difference? I'll tell you what Jesus is looking for. Where do you think that starts? Faith in Christ. Seeing yourself and seeing Jesus. True faith does what? It works. It comes from the inside. How could a Gentile Roman centurion love Jewish people? What overcame his prejudices? Faith in Jesus. Spiritual sight of his own unworthiness and the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Listen, God came to this man in power. He opened up his eyes. He opened up his heart to believe. And so the heart of the centurion was softened to receive the truth of the Old Testament scriptures or from some Jewish friends that he knew. And he heard and his heart was soft to receive the Messiah. His heart became like his father in heaven. It became what? Humble and gentle and lowly. It became merciful and kind. And he had a new disposition, one that forgave. Oh, he had a disposition. He became poor in spirit. He loved righteousness. Oh, he had true faith that loved his enemies, the Jews. He had true faith where his heart and his mind were connected. He was a man with integrity who would not pull out the log but and, look, and overlook the speck. He was a man who obeyed and knew the authority of the word of Christ. This was a man who was a case study of the sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was a man who built upon the foundation of the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I don't get the sermon you preach. You took too long. Okay, here it is. It is the life of the centurion. This is a picture of the power of the sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a passage, the centurion's faith. What a Savior is Jesus our Lord. And so that leads us to some application for the next bit of time. We see now that, what? The Jews' viewpoint. We've seen the centurion's viewpoint. We've seen Jesus' viewpoint. By the way, don't you love Jesus? What a good mentor he is. There's all kinds of people following him. Can you just see him just following him? And he's like, boom. You see this? I'm talking about discerning discipleship here. You want to see what this turning to those following him said? I'll tell you, not even Israel. Don't miss the turning part. He wants to show people this is what it's all about. Right here. The fourth viewpoint is our viewpoint. Our viewpoint number four. So, I want to give you four quick things as we end to, to drive this home. Hang with me. Hang with me. Number one, and I'm sorry they're out of order. I changed this. This is embarrassing. Letter C in your notes is actually the first one. Number, so number one, faith in Jesus produces a response. So it's letter C under that, our response, is, num, is the, really number one. Faith in Jesus produces a response. Jesus is looking for something valuable. He's hunting for treasure 
Verse 9, I have not found faith in all Israel like this. And when he finds faith, he marvels at it. But more importantly, Jesus responds to faith. Listen to that. Jesus responds to faith. We know that from our last verse. Evidence of it, verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So Jesus responded to faith. Let me encourage you. Jesus always responds to faith. Let me say that again. Jesus always responds to faith. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is looking for something valuable. He's looking for truth, faith. And when he finds it, he values it. He never ignores faith. Jesus never ignores faith. He responds to it. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Or... Mark chapter 9, verse 22, about the man who was thrown around by the demons. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out, and this is the cry of our hearts I know, I do believe, but help my unbelief. If Jesus looks at you and your life, would he find faith in you? Would Jesus be amazed at your faith? And I'm telling you, is it just, are we just looking at faith here like, whoa, faith? Is it faith and faith? Is that what we're into around here? No, that leads us to our second point, which is really number one on your list. Faith in Jesus Number two, then, that's our viewpoint here. Faith in Jesus focuses on the word. This is so important. Where do we find out what we are really like? Where do we find out what God is really like? Where do we find the way home to heaven? I don't want your fallen neurons firing in completely all messed up to give me the answer? I need something more sure than that. I need the living and enduring word of God. The truth about ourselves, the truth about God, the truth about the gospel is found in the word of God. We see Jesus Christ in the word. We are given faith to come to the word of God and to trust what it says, to be warned by its warnings, to hope in its promises, to obey its commands. And we know that our Lord has spoken in the word of God. He's spoken here. And we know, therefore, that the word has authority. And so when we come to Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we're coming to the word of God. We're coming to see Jesus. We're coming to see ourselves in the Word of God. And that is why it's a supernatural event 
when we come to the word of God, it's as a veil needs to drop off before our eyes so that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And where do we see the face of Jesus Christ? Do we get a vision like in Isaiah's day? No, we see the glory of God in the, with unveiled faces as we come to the word of God and behold his glory as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, and are transformed from glory to glory into his image by faith. And that's what the centurion saw. He saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did he literally see his face? And Luke wants to highlight the authority of the word of Christ, that he trusted in the word of Christ. And that's what Luke wants to show us here. Faith in Jesus focuses on the word of Jesus found in his word. And so we come to the word of God. We come and say to Jesus, and it's faith talking. Oh, Jesus, here I am this morning. Just say the word. I'm here for another sermon. Oh, Jesus, change me. Just say the word, and it shall be done. Teach me, teach me, teach me according to thy word. It's an adequate word. It's an authoritative word. It's a sufficient word. It's everything we need for life and goodness, life and godliness. We can trust the word of Christ. For he, as Jeremiah the prophet wrote in Jeremiah 1 verse 12, you have seen well, the Lord said to Jeremiah, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And number three, faith in Jesus increases in quantity. And we'll we'll wrap up here soon. Listen, faith in Jesus increases in quantity. Jesus was amazed. Did you notice that he was amazed at what? Great faith. Did you notice that? And what that means is you can have believer. You can have little faith. You can have great faith. And here is the secret of happiness in this life. Here is the secret of holiness in this life. It's going on from faith to faith. It's growing in our, in our faith about our neediness and brokenness and our growing in our faith and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and glow, uh, growing in our view of him. It, it's putting aside being frantic and it's asking for faith. And I just say, what a prayer request. The Lord will honor this. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm coming to the prayer meeting. I'm tired. I don't want to be here. Oh, Lord, help me. Grow me through this, through the preaching of the word. Give me more faith. Because all of the words of Christ must be spiritually appraised, spiritually believed, We need eyes to see. Oh, Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. And then finally, faith in Jesus is not faith in faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Not faith in your faith, but faith in Jesus answers the world's need. Brothers and sisters, this is the whole overarching plan of God in this passage. It's no accident that when Jesus illustrates the Sermon on the Mount, he illustrates faith in a Gentile Roman soldier. Because let me tell you something, and this goes on with what you preached this morning in the CE hour. What this world needs 
is faith in Jesus. Yes, we believe in church planting missions around here, don't we? But let me tell you, what's the purpose of church planting missions? It's for unbelievers to have faith in Jesus Christ. And it's for believers to have more faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel for the Jews. This is the gospel for the Gentiles right here. This is the whole point of missions, faith in Jesus Christ. Men and women and children in Austria need faith in Jesus Christ. In Tanzania, in Sierra Leone, in Ukraine, in Russia, in China, in Bolivia. Men and women from every tribe, every nation, every kindred, and every tongue have got to see their own sin and have got to see the beauty and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our mission. This is our message. This is the world's need, faith in Jesus Christ. And so what that means for you here as we close is this. Are you ready? This sermon, this passage is not for the person next to you. You need faith. You need more faith. Faith is not for someone else. Faith is the most valuable thing that you can ever possess. And faith is the thing that is most valuable for everyone in every corner on this globe. Your house is not that valuable. I'm sorry. Your car is going to zero. Your retirement fund is not that valuable, but I'll tell you what. If you have been given the gift of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the most precious treasure in all of the world, and it is for all of the world, and therefore it's most valuable for you. Jesus is looking for faith in you. So do you feel this morning that you are worthy for God to save you? Or do you find yourself like this centurion? I am unworthy. I know that you are willing. I know that you have the power, Jesus. I know that you can save me. And I need you to help and save a sinner like me. Understand here today, if you are without Christ, you are just like that young boy on his deathbed. He could not help himself. He could not save himself. And yet Jesus was willing. And he could save you in an instant. Jesus, just say the word. And my dear friend will be saved right now and will go home forgiven and justified today. Just say the word, Jesus. Jesus, I need you. Just say the word about me. Christian, Jesus is looking for faith. When we are frantic, we need, to, we need to rest. When our finances are tight, we've got to believe that he'll never leave us or forsake us. When we're rejected and misunderstood, we've got to say from the heart, from the heart by faith, Jesus is enough for me. Brothers and sisters, this is not for unbelievers only. This passage is for us. We need more faith. We need to have the faith of the centurion. May we move on, not in frantic activity, but may we move on in faith that says to Jesus, Jesus, just say the word. You can change me. You can sanctify me. 
You can rescue me. Jesus, just say the word. You can unite us. Jesus, just say the word. You can unite us. You can direct us. You can give us wisdom, Jesus. Just say the word. Let us pray.